fake, fake, fakeity fake. Hi, I'm Jody. And I'm Vienna. And welcome to Imperial News, where I spend my whole week listening to the far-right podcast Rebel News and talk about the sweet taste of insects. My friend Vienna. Are this sweet? I thought it would be more, like, savory, you know? I think it depends on how you want to season it, right? Like, because you could get, like, chocolate crickets. Yeah, but that's that's the chocolate that's sweet, not the crickets, you know? Well, fair. What if they, what if they feed the chocolate to the crickets before? <laughs> like it'll probably break hmm. down the sugars, but maybe it won't. And like I don't know, I don't know. I'm not an entomologist. What the fuck do I know? Okay, I apologize for challenging <laughs> <laughs> your flavor profile of crickets. How are you, Vienna? Um. I think that my uh, ibuprofen has finally like kicked in a little bit, so nice. I'm feeling I'm feeling better than the last record. Nice. Um, still sick. Um, yeah. How are you? I am feeling satiated. I had some soup in between the first record. <laughs> That's good. So like. Uh... Yeah, I'm feeling full. Other than that, mood is still the same. So if you want to know how I feel, you can listen to the previous episode, which was recorded on the same day. We're good at this. <laughs> yeah, good at something. So, uh, yeah, strap it. This is probably going to be a, a shorter episode, but uh, it's mostly going to be about bugs because that seems to be the it topic for some reason. But... Uh, yeah, uh, bon appetit. Hello, my rebels. Hello, my rebels. I'm a good boy. I'm a weirdo. On this episode, we are covering the week of October 3rd till October 7th. And on the third, Ezra seems to want to target Jacinda Ardern for some reason, the uh, leader of New Zealand. And it's mostly because she gave this speech, which he thinks is critical of free speech or his kind of like free speech absolutism. So he, he wants to go after her as being like a Trudeau type politician. Sure. She she's she's sunny ways, but like actually good at it, you know? Yeah, I can see that. I mean like he even criticizes her for like what I would describe as good takes that everyone should have. Like, for example, he he criticizes her for using COVID deaths to promote her climate change agenda. Which all she was doing is like, look at the loss of life that occurred from some of the mismanagement due to COVID. Let's learn from those mistakes when like we have to deal with climate change or something. And he he goes through because we know that he's kind of iffy on like the numbers when it comes to COVID deaths. So he goes through a spiel about how like, yeah, the reports, they're, they're oh, like they go way above how many people actually died. And he goes, but pe some people still did die from COVID. And how dare she use their deaths? 
to promote climate change agenda. How dare she suggest that we learn from experiences? I, like, it's the irony, too, of, like, downplaying the deaths of COVID to make some sort of... But then also using those that he still believes did die to go, how dare you? <laughs> it's just a, a fantastic rhetorical technique. But then he criticizes her for being anti-nuclear weapons. She And, like, he... he clips her and she literally is just like wouldn't it be great if the world reduces nuclear weapons and his response is like she wants to take america's nukes away while allowing russia and china to keep theirs and in nothing she said did she actually say what he he says she said it's like huh. isn't getting rid of nukes good no every person should have a nuke <laughs> personal nukes yeah that's actually what but they like, wrote in the constitution keep and bear arms but like full strength like like not not small ones every like, person should have a city leveling weapon <laughs> a hydrothermal yeah just like on them at all times yeah okay that'll it's a good way to make sure that like workplaces are actually kind of um, good places to be because <laughs> you know, all it takes is one disgruntled employee <laughs> i was gonna say it's mutually assured destruction but at the personal level <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh that's terrifying <laughs> so <laughs> the main so the main thing is and we're only going to cover some of it but he does this for the entire episode is he's he's going over a speech of hers which is about the spread of misinformation online and his whole sort of tact is he he starts by he plays this clip of uh, Salman Rushdie where Salman Rushdie says you need like so he you need to have free speech and then he goes but like some people say free speech but when they when they're praising free speech they add a but and then go on right so like free speech is great but and Salman Rushdie is criticizing people who do that now I don't happen to agree with Salman Rushdie on this point. Uh, still, you know, not great of what happened to him. But, like, <laughs> but like, yes, free speech in some cases is good. But I think, like, people, like, overuse it in certain cases, which we're going to see in how Ezra touches on this speech anyways. But he's he plays that clip of Rushdie to make this connection that, like, Jocinda is doing a similar thing in this speech, which is that she's saying misinfo, or she's saying free speech is good, but, you know, misinformation, it's kind of bad. Like, and so he's going to criticize her about that. So I'm going to play the first clip, which is him starting to get into her speech, and uh, then we'll talk about it, and then we'll have a, another clip about it. But here's the first one. In New Zealand, we deeply value our right to protest. Some of our major social progress has been brought about by hekoi, or people power, becoming the first country in the world to recognize women's right to vote, movement on major indigenous and human rights issues, to name but a few. Upholding these values in a modern environment translates into protecting a free, secure, and open internet. To realize all of the opportunities that it presents in the way we communicate, the way we organize, the way we gather, 
but that does not mean the absence of transparency, expectations, or even rules, if we correctly identify what it is we are trying to prevent. Did you hear the word, but, make an appearance, but? <laughs> and surely we can start with violent extremism and terrorist content online. Okay, well, terrorism is already banned online in every country in the world. Of course, she means incitement of terrorism, which is banned. No one is actually killed online. But that's already banned under criminal law and by the social media platforms, too. They don't allow terrorism online. But she uses the phrase extremism and the word content which only she will define, like Trudeau did. I mean, he called the peaceful truckers extremists. He actually defamed them as violent, too. Ardern moves from rare terrorist attacks to treating everyone online as a potential terrorist and getting algorithms to suffocate dissenting opinions. So this is a theme throughout it, too, which is that, like, his, his sort of, like, going on about what she said, I didn't hear her say anything <laughs> Like what he's characterizing his speech as, right? Yeah, like that. Like he started off with like, "Did you hear the butt?" and then like the the evil giggle. I didn't. I didn't hear the butt. Um, and then he just like jumped off from there of like, "Oh wow, they already ban um terrorism and nobody gets killed online," as if like a whole generation of people didn't grow up with, like, seeing beheadings online all the time. Like, that was a pretty, like, normal and widespread thing on the internet within the past few years. Like, just because they've gotten slightly more successful at shutting it down doesn't mean that I haven't, for example, seen, like, Taliban accounts from before the takeover of Afghanistan that I haven't, like, you know, it's still very present. It, and, you know, not even to say, like, hey, um, 8chan, yeah. <laughs> uh, the live streaming of mass shootings, um, like, people dropping their manifestos and then going off on murder sprees, like, those things are ever-present within, like, a lot of online spheres. With it, the illegality question is weird, too, because it's like, terrorism is illegal, sure, but it's not like, like, what is New Zealand going to do about a website, say, like, being promoted by a terrorist organization? Like, the best they could do is try to, like, block it and cut it down, but they can pop up again, etc. But it's not like, you know, those people are going to be prevented by, uh, or, or gonna, going to have New Zealand law deter them from, <laughs> you know? Because what are they, they're going to go after them wherever they live in another country and, like, find them for these things? Like, it's just, it's kind of silly to talk about this in terms of, like, illegality. When, like, what what she is seemingly referring to is, like, large-scale social media companies being able to appropriately regulate this content, which is what most people are talking about when they're talk talking about this stuff. And even, like, because you mentioned the butt, right? Even in, in the next clip, we'll get another butt, free speech butt. But, like, in this one, it was so tame because all she said was, like, 
free speech is great, but what we need is transparency. And what she was getting at was like transparency for these like social media companies and how they like regulate their content. Like that's the if, if anything, this but as well is not even a but against free speech. You know what I mean? This is a but like, but there's other things going on here that we need to care about. Like. <laughs> And that's the thing that, like, he's upset about. Now, like, I'm going to play the next clip. It, there is another but here, uh, which is, I guess, a little bit closer to what he's getting at. But, uh, again, this is just kind of silly. This week, we launched an initiative alongside companies and nonprofits to help improve research and understanding of how a person's online experiences are curated by automated processes. This will also be important in understanding more about mis- and disinformation online, a challenge that we must, as leaders, address. Sadly, I think it's easy to dismiss this problem as one in the margins. I can certainly understand the desire to leave it to someone else. She's saying it's not rare. She's saying it's not on the margins. She's saying everyone you meet could be a potential terrorist. Everyone who has extreme opinions, like opposing her on climate or the lockdowns, I imagine, that's extreme to her. As leaders, we're rightly concerned that even the most light-touch approaches to disinformation could be misinterpreted as being hostile to the values of free speech that we value so highly. But while I cannot tell you today what the answer is to this challenge, I can say with complete certainty that we cannot ignore it. To do so poses an equal threat to the norms we all value. Did you hear the word but appear there again? I love free speech, but we can't ignore the problems with free speech. But it's a threat, but always the word but. After all, how do you successfully end a war if people are led to believe the reason for its existence is not only legal, but noble? How do you tackle climate change if people do not believe it exists? How do you ensure the human rights of others are upheld when they are subjected to hateful and dangerous rhetoric and ideology? Is she saying that censoring people in New Zealand on Facebook will cause Putin and Zelensky to end a war? Did the war start because of something her citizens said? If not, why are they being punished for the war? Listening to this was amazing because it's like he's completely ignoring and like why would he play this for his listeners and then completely ignore what she's saying and like put words into her mouth that she clearly didn't say. Yeah, I I don't get this one. I mean because like to read into it at all is obviously like, oh, a lot of this is probably in reference to the Christchurch massacre which was committed by a dude who listened to Rebel News. Who donated to Rebel News. Yes. Nothing nothing to be said there. Not implying um, a causal relationship yeah. between the two, um, just uh, stating the facts. Yes, nothing lawsuitable, uh, but... But... But, it, like, but, you saying this, like... That, that is what I was thinking while listening to this, is, is it's the subtext here. Like, I, I feel that subtext from what Ezra is saying, but it's never stated throughout this entire episode of him mm-hmm. just listening to this speech and talking to it. But, like, what else could the subtext be? He's worried about being labeled as an extremist in New Zealand is the vibes that I got. Yeah. Uh, 
and, and like even here like the butt like i framed this butt as like maybe a little bit more but even when thinking about it all jacinda was saying was like the paradox of tolerance which isn't even like that goes all the way back to like Karl popper that's not a <laughs> you know which is that like you know if you tolerate the intolerant then there goes free speech right uh so it's like you're, you're valuing free speech and toleration is going to come back to bite you is basically all that is and that's all she's saying is like, yeah, free speech is great, but if you allow people to promote uh, extremist rhetoric, it could come back to bite us in various ways, which it did in the exact case that you're talking about. Yeah. Which is weird that like he then makes it about like to focus on the Ukraine war, even though it's such a small part of what she's talking about. Yeah, like a throwaway line is like all that he can focus on. The rest of the episode is him still responding to this clip but he makes it all about the uh russian ukraine war and to me it's like it's in what she's talking about in terms of like there being misinfo surrounding that war but like mm -hmm. it's it's almost like it's a small part of the general thing which is that she talks about there being misinformation about climate change and also misinformation about far-right extremism right but like it was just such a weird episode of it because like I've seen Alex Jones do stuff like this and like hooray one billion dollars. I know we're not going to cover it really, but might as well throw it in here since I just brought up his name. <laughs> uh, but like I've seen Alex Jones do that where he plays like a clip of CNN and then just like comes in with his commentary like every other word and like says some stuff. But I've never really seen Ezra do this, but it was like weird of him like like stopping the clip and saying a few things and then replaying it and just playing the whole speech. It was very weird. We're like, cause like he was watching a clip and commenting on it. And then we're listening to a clip and commenting on both the commentary and the initial clip. In fairness, we added a lot more commentary. Some of his was just like, did you hear her say, but what is, um, so we've got rebels and we've got empire what is the next step? What is the what is the thing that listens to us and comments all the way down? The the Swiss or whatever neutral, <laughs> whatever the the neutral people are. Yeah. So that's that's it for this episode. The, the next thing that happens is he interviews Gordon Chang. And it's amazing because, again, Gordon Chang wrote a book back, I want to say it was in 2001, can't remember, but it was called The Coming Collapse of China. China still hasn't collapsed. And this interview was literally them discussing how China is currently collapsing. So, like, trust them this time. It's really happening. <laughs> it's still collapsing. It's almost there. It's almost collapsing. It's on the verge. It's going to collapse. Trust them. It's happening. October 4th isn't even worth talking about. Uh, he had Lauren Gunter on for the whole show. Lauren is just really boring. And uh, he's more he's more center-right than I find Ezra is. Like, it's weird saying that, but I feel like Lauren, he's bad. He's terrible. Don't get me wrong. But he's not as far off as, as Ezra is, in my opinion. That being said, they just sit around talking about uh, Daniel Smith, as who's likely going to become the next premier of alberta and this of course was 
before or i think it was like the day before the election or something it was like really close to the election she and, uh, is the premier of alberta right but at the time they yeah. did this piece it had not oh, yeah. yet okay. happened yet uh so that that was basically it and like yeah cool daniel smith did in fact become the premier cool uh, <laughs> They didn't really say anything of substance other than that she would be like, uh, she cares a little bit about the separatism issue, and that'll be interesting to see how it plays out. It was kind of like the most interesting thing that was said. I'm Yeah, I mean, same. Yep. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. <laughs> that also sort of ties into the next day. So on October 5th, Sheila was the guest host. The beginning half, she just complains about OPEC because uh, OPEC started doing some shenanigans that were increasing oil prices, and uh, but she again she doesn't get into any of the substance. She's just complaining that like she makes it about like ethical oil again and how like what we need is Canadian oil to be the dominant market source so that we can control the prices or some shit. Like I don't know. That was a very like funny. Um... Like, when OPEC announced production cuts, um, like, the reactions in the U.S. were very funny just because, like, it briefly looked like the Dems were going to try to pull American troops out of um, Saudi and, I think, the UAE, like, in reaction to it. And it's like, damn, them cutting oil production does more than, like, (laughs) 10 years of war on Yemen. (laughs) Like... Yeah. Just, I like were those just rumors cuz I can't imagine them doing that. No, like one of I don't remember who it was. Like it was some congressman or senator that I hadn't really heard of before was like genuinely like like I think a bill got introduced. Interesting. Yeah. That's so weird. The collapse of the American empire is just <laughs> very funny. <laughs> The the interview was then with uh, K two, which is their uh, Kian Simone, not to be confused with Kian Bexty, which is why they gave him the nickname K two, and I guess he made a documentary, and it was about Alberta, and how great Alberta is, and like they talk a lot about how he talked to Alberta separatists in it. Uh, and yeah, they're just like, that's the only way Alberta can get a seat at the table is if we, like, threaten to separate. That's why Quebec gets everything. Quebec gets everything because they threaten separatism, and then the Federals were like, oh, have everything. And so now Alberta needs to do it, and then the Federal Government will give Alberta everything it needs. The thing yeah. that <laughs> the thing that really annoys me about this argument is, like, what what was the Harper administration for, like, over 10 years in this country? Like, he was an Alberta boy, wasn't he? Yeah, but he... Listen, he had to dress up in a cowboy outfit yeah. to convince <laughs> them that he was an Alberta boy. It's just so That's silly. the thing about these Calgary city slickers. They don't... They don't understand the Alberta soul. The trucks the hats the stampede that notably doesn't it comes to calgary but it's not of calgary you know it, it's just this idea that somehow alberta has been left behind and it's just like not really i don't think to be honest the wealthiest province has been left behind 
well, it's all because all the other provinces take their oil money and use it for things or something. That's that's usually the argument. It's like, what is it, equalization payments? It has something to do with that. And they get yeah. complaining about it. But whatever. I, I I don't think I'm going to be watching this movie. It could be like the uh, the Coots Blockade movie and it, they'll just air it in a Calgary theater and we'll never see it. <laughs> so that was October 5th. October 6th, David Menzies came to our hometown to stalk the cricket farm. <laughs> okay? So for those who don't know, there's been this ongoing conspiracy. I, I think it predated the pandemic where Ezra was talking about how like the global elites, due to their climate change agenda, want to force everyone to eat bugs. This got exacerbated near like within the last year at like near the tail end of like the current phase of the pandemic. And it got framed in terms of like now it's the World Economic Forum that is the one really pushing this eat eat your bugs agenda. And it's usually framed in terms of like it's because the global elites want to like stroke their own egos and look at the poor peasants eating bugs or something. It's it's usually the argument given because otherwise it's like, why do we care about this subject? So that brings us to today where we've already covered it a couple weeks ago because there was a cricket farm that opened up in our hometown. And so a lot of people on the far right who believe in this World Economic Forum conspiracy theory now think London, Ontario was ground zero for this eating your bugs agenda even though we already mentioned in that previous episode that the farm that was built in London, Ontario is going to be primarily or pretty much solely for now for pet food. So none of it is going for human consumption. But of course, this does not stop David Menzies, who needs to get on the case. And he comes to London. And uh, of course, he starts stomping around the building, trying to interview people and get access to things. Now, at first, they brush him aside, and then, to my surprise, the owner of the farm, Mohammed Asher, who's the CEO of Aspire, actually agrees to talk to David. And my first thought about this is, dear God, never talk to Rebel News. What the hell are you doing? Mm-hmm. But I will. That was so. That's my initial thoughts. But let's watch this, and then I'm curious how you feel. How Muhammad Asher does, or how how well he deals with David Menzies, and whether you think at the end of this uh, it was a good idea or not. So, the first thing, I'm just going to go through a, uh, the first few of it, and then I, I have some audio clips of the exchange. But the first thing that David asks uh, Muhammad is about whether anything in the facility is being used for human consumption, and Muhammad's answer is clearly no, that it's only being sold for pet food. David then asks about whether they're getting foreign funding for the plant. Because, again, this is a part of their uh, uh, agenda about foreign-funded environmentalists. Mm-hmm. Muhammad's response is that they tried to get funding from America, but couldn't because they were Canadian. Like, they tried to get various grants, and each time were denied because of the Canadian. But they did eventually get some grants from the Canadian government. So, like, it's funny because 
I picked up on what David was asking Muhammad, but then I think Muhammad was like, yeah, foreign funding, like America, <laughs> which is not usually how uh, they they conceive of what foreign funding means. Yeah. So then David asks his first uh, World Economic Forum style question. So this is going to be a bit of a long clip, but I want to get David's asking of the question and then getting to hear Muhammad's response. And, and as you said, um, what you're growing here is destined for pet food. Um, maybe there's a potential for human food in the future, but there's a lot of uh, buzz, if you pardon the pun, about um, um, insects being used as edibles for human beings. Mm. And, I mean, we see it from, you know, people with the World Economic Forum. Mm. Uh, you, um, United Nations, as you mentioned, gave that $1 million uh, prize to you. Um, I'm wondering why Why does it seem to me, uh, Mr. Ashur, that there's um, people in powerful positions advocating the consumption of insects, mm. while at the same time, waging war on traditional agriculture. You see what's happening in the Netherlands. Uh, here in Canada, there was a scheme to put warning labels on Canadian ground beef. And um, a lot of people, I guess, are nervous or concerned that is this going to be part of the new world order, so to speak, the idea that we're going to give up beef and chicken and pork and instead have insects on our dinner tables? Uh, I should hope not. Okay. I'll tell you something right now. I personally consume meat. Um, my family consumes meat. My parents are from Egypt. I've traveled around the world. I think it is preposterous to imply or suggest that we're going to live in a world without meat. While I, from a distance, can respect entrepreneurs who want to envision a world without meat, I've been around enough farmers and I've seen regenerative agriculture and what amazing things it can do for our land. So I think that there's a misperception and this is the broader alternative protein movement. You have companies that are on one extreme that say, the world needs to get rid of all meat, we're against meat, everybody needs to be eating, you know, plant-based this and, you know, alternative that. And then you have on the other extreme, the, you know, under no circumstances, over my dead body, I'm only eating, you know, beef every single day right. uh, for the rest of my body. Our company is not an anti-meat company. And I actually have lost customers over that because a lot of the alternative protein um, companies are very puritanical in that perspective. Like, they really expect you to be doggedly against meat or else, like, you're... You're not, you're not in the fold. That's not our position. Our position is meat is here to stay. Okay. We, and, and there's lots of opportunity for us to create better regenerative agriculture around it. Our perspective is the world is growing massively. We need more protein. And insects are so efficient at converting what they eat into, into protein biomass. This facility here is on four acres and it will produce you know, 12 million kilograms a year of meat, of insect protein. That's a massive productivity out of a short amount of land. So we're contributing and we're seeing ourselves as part of an overall solution. But meat's going nowhere. So what do we think? I love how fucking nervous David Menzies is. Yeah. <laughs> this entire, like, stumbling over, like, all of his sentences and, like, so, like you know like a high schooler interviewing a celebrity type of thing and then this dude just comes out there with like no confident no speaking problems yeah. yeah just like confident knows what he's saying notices what he's talking about like just able to shut shut it down this is great i don't think david knew like david thought that they were going to say yes to this he would have thought that just like everyone else they were going to shut him out and like you know and then he would get to have his scene and like go on with his video. 
But like, there's a, a sense in which this just totally shuts David down because there really is nothing to this story. They're just a, a cricket farm for pets. <laughs> yeah. The next question has to do with whether or not poor people eat bugs, which is like part of David's mens- uh, David's uh, argument for the past few weeks is that like only poor people eat bugs. And like I said before that that's not true. In fact, it's a delicacy and like all kinds of other things. So let's see. Let's see how the Muhammad uh, from Aspire Foods deals with this question. Well, you know, it, it's interesting because I think I saw you quoted, it might have been a CBC article, sure. and I think you said up to about 2 billion of uh, the world's people actually eat insects. And But I would say, on the other hand, uh, Mr. Ashur, is that because they don't have access to any other protein or meat that they're forced to eat that's, bugs? That's so interesting you say that. So I used to think that too, right? Because I didn't grow up eating insects myself. In fact, when we first came up with the idea for this business, we didn't... We didn't really, we weren't really sure um, uh, which insect even to start with, right? So when we traveled to Oaxaca, Mexico, and this is one of the poorest states in Mexico, okay? okay? One kilogram of grasshoppers, David, is more expensive than a kilogram of beef, chicken, and pork combined. Can you believe that? (laughs) I couldn't believe it. I find that very hard to believe, but is that true? It is true. And you know why? It's because grasshoppers only come in season for about three months. And because of that, well, three things. One, they're in short supply and the demand is quite high because they're quite tasty. You take anything and you add chili and lime and, 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 and seasoning and it's going to taste delicious. But the second reason is because the manual labor involved in capturing that many grasshoppers. Go try catching a thousand grasshoppers. Good luck, right? Okay. So, so that makes it very expensive to capture this amount of protein and that's what makes it expensive. And I saw relatively poor people literally going up and buying grasshoppers in like 10 gram portions because that's all they could afford. So that was so disruptive to my worldview. It made me realize that this, you know, if insects are so prevalent and if apparently they are, they are so good nutritionally, why haven't they already solved world hunger? Well, it turns out in a lot of these countries, you actually can't rely on these insects year round because they only come in season due to temperature and climate for a short period and high demand makes them very expensive. Mm-hmm. So it's actually on the contrary, not only are people not forced to eat this food, they seem to be going out of their way to spend an inordinate amount of money to enjoy this delicacy. Wow. That, that is fascinating. That is fascinating, isn't it, David? Um, <laughs> almost like wow. you could have done the research prior, prior to doing these segments. I love this dude. <laughs> I mean, I said the exact same things on our show. Like, it was all it took was an easy Google search to find out this information. Because I can't remember what country it was. I think it might have been Nigeria, which was the one that David uh, was targeting, saying only poor people eat bugs. And even there, it took like two seconds with a Google search to find out, oh, no, it's a delicacy. They're hard to procure because it's seasonal. Like, all, like mm-hmm. it's not just Mexico, which is what this guy specifically was talking about. This, It's the same like everywhere uh, when it comes to bugs. Maybe not every bug, but like similar things crop up like everywhere, which is just like all he, all David had to do was Google this stuff, you know. Putting, putting unreasonable expectations on David. <laughs> Menzies then asks about the insects having more pathogens, which is something that Sheila Gunn-Reed kept on bringing up. And Mohammed responds that much like every other agricultural product in Canada and the United States, they are heavily regulated. And so, no, there's not an increase of pathogens that's all like sorted out uh, through the regulatory bodies. Mm-hmm. Then uh, 
Menzies pushes him one last time to to like get at him to see if they are ever going to push for human consumption. And Muhammad says he doesn't see that happening for a long time. So he doesn't say no, but like he's like, it's probably in the far future if that ever does happen. Mm-hmm. Menzies leaves this, so he leaves the interview, and now he's like, you know, doing his like summing it all up piece at the end of this. And most of, of his talking points and worldview had just been shattered in front of his face. <laughs> and he, he he starts by going on a rant about how, like, well, like, I'm a libertarian, so, like, people can eat whatever they want. They want to eat bugs? Let them eat bugs. But then he, he has to find, like, some angle to, like, get upset about. So this is, this is where Menzies decides to end uh, the segment. My bugaboo, alas, is the sheer amount of taxpayer dollars propping up insect farms like Aspire. If there is indeed a business case to be made for edible insects, then why are taxpayer-funded subsidies needed? The same could be said for our state broadcaster, the CBC. If a majority of Canadians gave a rodent's rectum about the CBC, then why does it need more than a billion dollars in taxpayer welfare on an annual basis? And the answer to that query, of course, is this, just check out the CBC's abysmal ratings these days. In the meantime, I remain completely unconvinced that insects are a viable protein source, assuming one is given the choice between bugs or burgers, or for that matter, even broccoli. The mere sight of bugs is revolting to so many of us who make up club homo sapiens. Thus, sorry, World Economic Forum, when it comes to my dinner plate, I will once again paraphrase the late, great Charlton Heston. I'll give you my hamburger when you pry it from my cold, dead hands. Hey, David, how, how much in government subsidies does animal agriculture or <laughs> plant-based agriculture get per year? More. More proportionally as well. Yeah. Ridiculous amounts of government subsidy. Like, it need Amazingly, agriculture needs to be propped up by the state because otherwise it's not profitable. Yep. That's just how it works. No, it's it's... A silly argument but then even in the end they're kind of like doubling down again which is just like him being like i i just i can't conceive how this can be a protein replace it's like he's like i just don't get it and yet even in the interview the guy explained to him how this is actually people go out of their way to purchase these as delicacies like mm-hmm. but he's like i just can't I just find it so gross that i can't imagine another human being in this world that finds it delicious like that's all it is it's like great david so based on the end of that i don't think this is the end of the bug arc but hopefully it's the end of the london ontario thing because i don't know i think muhammad did a really good job there yeah no that was that was great on his end not his fault that david's incapable of learning (laughs) i will say like for like 
when it comes to being like an anti-fascist on the streets, like, yeah, don't engage. But like, I almost feel like when it comes to like some of the businesses that he's stalking, like something like this can actually work to sort of like diffuse the situation of just being like, no, you, you have misconceptions about what we're doing and here's what's going on. And I thought it was yeah. well handled. So kudos to Muhammad. But now, are you ready to be angry? <laughs> oh, joy. Uh, so David ends up, at the end of the show, interviewing someone named Laura Rosen Cohen. Have you ever heard of her? This is the first time I've ever heard of this person. I didn't know um, they exist, but... No, probably not. So, she's on to talk about how Berkeley Law School in California, they have, or is it in California? Either way, Berkeley Law School in the United States. <laughs> brought uh, yeah, it to it's all in, the United States. It's UC Berkeley, so. Well, that's what I assumed, but then I started thinking that it was in New York, New York for some reason. But either way, I can't remember from all the articles I read what state it was exactly. Yeah. But yeah, she's complaining because Berkeley Law School student groups banned Zionism from their clubs. I think it was a total of nine groups ended up banning Zionists from their clubs. And both Laura and David characterized this as the banning of Jews generally, not just those who promote Zionism. (sighs) Which, of course, is uh, not good. And then Laura Rosen Cohen explicitly states that if someone says they are anti-Zionist, what they really mean is that they are anti-Jew. So this is kind of like the line they're taking with this interview. To be Jewish, to be pro-Jewish is to be pro-Zionism. These two are the, the same thing. Her Twitter claims that she is mother of Mark Stein. I don't think she's actually the mother of Mark Stein. Maybe is she, she married to him? She works for his website. So I don't know if this is some kind of like inside joke. Yeah. But she does work for his website. Okay. Which is going to become relevant in a second. But I am going to play a clip because at one point in the discussion, it turns from what's happening at this Berkeley Law School to the general question about whether or not Jewish people should be left-wing and support the Democrats or not. And, you know, David Menzies is not Jewish, but I'm going to play his question, because even in his phrasing of this question, it is really gross. And then we will also get uh, Laura's response to the question. And uh, so this clip is going to be a little long. I just had to include David actually asking the question, because it is... uh, I'll let I'll let you be the judge of how this is, okay? <laughs> okay. You know, Laura, what you said earlier um, is a very important point um, that there are so many in the Jewish community that vote left. I would argue that if you are a Jew in 2022 and you're voting for the Biden Democrats or the Justin Trudeau liberals, 
I would question if you're a self-hating Jew, because these are not your friends. These are, you know, I mean, Justin Trudeau, when he was unveiling uh, Holocaust proclamations, he couldn't even say the I word Jew. Um, with, with Biden, look what um, Rashida Tlaib says on almost a, uh, uh, a weekly basis. Um, here's a quote. Um, I want you all to know that among progressives, it has become clear that you cannot claim to hold progressive values yet back Israel's apartheid government. This is not anti-Israel. This is not anti-Zionist. This is anti-Semitism because there is no apartheid in Israel. And if your argument is based on a lie, then I'm sorry, the likes of Talib, that is classic anti-Semitism and nothing else. So can you possibly explain to me why in 2022, Laura, there are so many Jews that vote Democrat in the U.S. and liberal in Canada? So I am going to pause it there just to, to reflect. What do we what do we think so far about David asking this question? David's like so close to just being like, why do those cosmopolitan <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Why do those Judeo-Bolshevik like, you know, sure, I get it. You're one of the good ones, but like, it's just so... He's really walking that line. <laughs> I, yeah. It, it, it's like, for one, it's like I, any proclamations of like self-hating uh, of an ethnic group is just always comes from a racist place to me. It's like you could have Jewish people that support Israel and you can have Jewish people that don't. And it doesn't impinge on their Jewishness to have those positions, you know, or at least it shouldn't. Uh, have that effect on their Jewishness. But for for people like Menzies, it does, which says something like more essential about race, right? Or, or ethnicity in this case, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it, like, it, it just drips with racism e either way. Uh, the other thing, too, about the uh, apartheid stuff is just silly, too, because they never, I've never heard on this show an argument for why Israel is not an apartheid state. But David just like gives it all away. I was like, uh, Israel is by definition not an apartheid state. So therefore, you saying that it is means you're a liar and therefore are an anti-Semite merely for calling it apartheid. Which means that like all these human rights orgs like Amnesty International, they're all anti-Semites for, <laughs> for calling Israel an apartheid state. Yeah. I'm I'm surprised that David didn't bring up his his wife who lived in apartheid South Africa and left soon after. But like, and then he he's like said uh, that he's had some support for Nelson Mandela or stuff like the ANC as against apartheid. And and who what did uh, the ANC called what's happening to uh, the Palestinians? They called it apartheid. You know. Yeah. So we, we are going to hear her response, and uh, it's probably what you expect from someone who's appearing on Rebel News. Yes, I can. Okay. <laughs> I do have a question. So basically the problem is so Jews generally also have um, a messianic tendency, believing in utopian movements. They're very idealistic. Jews in their DNA have belief in their DNA. 
But a lot of Jews have um, kind of gone away from religion and religious beliefs and observance and real traditional Judaism in favor of much more progressive causes. So the Jews that you get voting Democrat and voting liberal in Canada, their religion for the most part is political leftism. That is what they believe in. They believe in that. Culturally, they're still Jewish. They might have Yiddish words that they use. They might um, celebrate holidays in certain ways, but their actual political belief, the thing that they strive towards is political leftism. So that really explains it all, which also is why in more orthodox communities, you're going to find people are voting for Trump. They're going to be more politically conservative. Um, and, and in Canada, they're voting more for conservatives. So there is a definite um, relationship between, I think, <clears throat> Jewish practice, that is to say, being Jewishly literate, prayer, holidays, Hebrew, um, have you traveled to Israel, that sort of thing, and um, level of commitment to conservative or left-wing politics. Once you realize that they're true believers, but they believe in political leftism as opposed to maybe the God of Israel, as was traditional, then it all makes sense. It all makes sense when you say, ah, those aren't real Jews. It's it's weird because like, she she is sort of saying that they are though because they have the Jewish DNA. <laughs> oh my God, I feel so gross even just saying it. They have the Jewish DNA, which makes them prone to belief. Some just like get like, persuaded by the untrue faith, which is like leftism, but all the true Orthodox Jewish people who have belief in their DNA, they become conservatives. Uh, you know, like an easy, easier non-racist way of putting that is like more Orthodox fundamentalist religious people tend to be more conservative in their political ideology. That You could say that without making weird, icky essentialist statements. Yeah. It's also funny because, like, Orthodox Judaism is also only, like, 200 years old. So it's not like, you know, which, like, is also when a lot of the other major, like, amongst, you know, Western European, like, that kind of geographical region and, like, you know, ethnicity of, like, Jewish people. Like, that's when all the other major denominations also started, was in, like, this sort of reaction to modernity, for lack of a better word. Um, and you get the same thing in Christianity and Islam. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I mean, say, like, obviously they're not identical, but there uh, a lot of groups in all these religious traditions have their own sects that have a rejection of modernity in some cases, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, and, like, but that's the thing is, like, all of these claims of, like, traditionalism or, like, orthodoxy or whatever are generally quite modern, right? Like, and you can say that about not just religion, but also about, like, nationalisms, where it's, like, you know, you're talking about, like, oh, this is the traditional food, and it is made with ingredients that did not exist on that continent 300 years ago. And you can say that about pretty much anywhere. Um, so, you know, it is in her, for her, by claiming like orthodoxy is the only like valid Jewish sect, 
you know, it is a like, oh, these are not real Jews or, oh, these are not like, you know, if you don't fall in line with our beliefs, then you are not legitimate in your, in your being of whatever, like, identity that might be. Sam Cedar of the Majority Report, uh, who is Jewish, has a line about this because Ben Shapiro made a similar argument that Laura is making here. And so Sam's taken to calling Ben the Pope of the Jews for getting to decide who and who is not Jewish based on like <laughs> what political positions they adopt. So it's like, oh, Ben wants to be the Pope of the Jews. Okay. When it's like, no, you could be Jewish and have a number of differing opinions about how the religion should, uh, what, what counts as good adherence or bad adherence, you know? Uh, yeah. Which is the thing. I mean, like, this is really is manifesting. It's like a, a type of religious fascism. It's no different. What she's manifesting is no different than the Christian fascists, uh, fascists that support her. So it's like, yeah, of course, they all think like this. Yeah. Yeah, and it's all within the, like, like this, the religion is subsumed into some sort of, like, ethnic nationalism as well, right? Like, you know, you can't separate Christian nationalism from white supremacy. You can't separate, like, Jewish Orthodox reactionary bullshit. I don't know what neat phrase to use for that from zionism like i mean you can't separate laura rosen cohen from it either because here she is appearing on rebel news she again is someone who writes for mark stein who's uh most notable for his great replacement theory uh a la muslim people and i found out that she has a podcast herself i think it was like called common sensei which is kind of gross of a title but hmm. one of her first guests on that podcast was pamela geller We've talked about on the show before because she was a guest recently on Rebel News, like maybe within the last year. Uh, Pamela Geller is someone who was written about favorably in their manifesto. That person's name was Anders Breivik, who shot up uh, people in Norway, who quoted Pamela Geller at length. And then Pamela Geller ended up giving like a soft defense for him basically saying he was just standing up for Norwegian culture and like the invasion of Muslims into Norway. So this is someone that Laura associates with. And at the beginning of her podcast of inter interviewing Pamela Geller, she's like, oh, I'm totally fangirling right now to talk to Pamela Geller right now. So, uh, yep. <sighs> and, and you want to know what the cherry on top is? She is the director of social media marketing coordinator for University of Toronto. She works for the University of Toronto and is their person in charge of marketing and social media. Holy fuck. So anyone who's listening who goes to the University of Toronto, uh, maybe tell your university to not hire this fucking person. I mean, it was Century U of T, right? Like, that is a culture within U, U of T's were fucking Jordan Peterson's from. Yep. Like... That institution is, like... I haven't followed the hmm? whole thing, but did you see, like, Jordan Peterson went to Israel and then walked to the... I think he went to the Temple Mount or something. He did something that violated some... The Wailing Wall? Yeah. 
No, he he or he went into one of the mosques. I can't remember. He did something that like pissed people off. No way. Or or Where? pissed off Muslims. I I can't remember. Yeah, it yeah. was like uh um Yeah, he joined them in storming Al-Aqsa. Yeah. Holy fuck. So uh fuck Jordan Peters. <laughs> you know what? Like if this gets like the right wing Muslims to turn against him, I'm <laughs> like Ah <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, all it's like it's all fucking connected. It's just like weird because like how essentialist and gross like the way they talk about this shit is, and then they pretend like we're the bad people when they're like, no, to be Jewish is to have the Jewish DNA of belief or like whatever. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I know University of Toronto, probably a, a crap, well, not probably, most universities are crappy institutions. And uh, given the state of universities in Canada, when it comes to issues involving Palestine, it's not, uh, we're not as cool and based as Berkeley Law School, apparently. <laughs> but like, uh, yeah, like the fact that someone who works for Mark Stein or used to work for Mark Stein, I don't know what the current status is, and someone who, uh, you know, appears on Rebel News and talks about Jewish DNA, maybe they shouldn't work for a university and their social media team. Yeah. Yep. God. <laughs> who uh, the fuck do we know in Toronto who can just, like, start this shit? Like... Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Well, that takes us to the seventh, and we have nothing to talk about. Menzies is the guest host again. I wonder if uh, Ezra was prepping for the Emergencies Act inquiry or something like this, uh, working with his Democracy Fund, who's one of the uh, parties who are involved with this whole thing. So, uh, but he was out for a lot of this week. But on the seventh, Menzies is the guest host again. He complains about the CBC. I don't care. I mean, this is this is an evergreen complaint of theirs. Is <laughs> the CBC? Uh, and then he interviews someone named Nikki Balu about what is happening in Iran. It's very similar to what we covered last episode, uh, similar topics. I mean, and like, so there was really nothing to mention except for Nikki Balu gave a shout out to atheists, which is very rare to hear. <laughs> and Nikki Balu is this guy. So he's been on before. The only thing that, to say about him is he's like a life coach who like is involved in what's called neuro-linguistic programming. And we talked about it the last time he was on. Is basically the same stuff that like Tony Robinson or is it Tony Robbins? The like motivational speaker dude who just uh is a pseudoscience hack, basically. So but but I mean Nikki this time he's on, he didn't say anything too objectionable. It's like, yeah, support the protesters in Iran. I do I should actually one thing that we could say about this, which is something that always comes up, it came up especially when the Hong Kong protests were happening too which is that when there's a lot of these protests that are not in Western countries that get support from right-wing media, what you often find is that they'll start calling what's happened. Some leftists in Western areas will start calling those people like, uh, yes, lefties in quotes for those who did not see <laughs> <laughs> the hand I was trying to do that just for our video watchers, <laughs> uh, but that's fine. But like, call them like CIA plants or or something, or this is a CIA orchestrated protest. And the thing is, 
there are reasons why the right wing are going to support these causes that have to do with other things like uh, Islamophobia and other stuff in terms of it, like, you know, uh, taking joy at the, like, the collapse of the, the mullahs and stuff like this, right? But it's like, just because they have a reason to want to see this succeed in their own way does not mean that the protesters on the ground are somehow all being manipulated by the CIA or some other nonsense, right? Like, I don't care whether Rebel supports the protests or not. Uh, I, I care the bullsh what bullshit they might say about it. Uh, you know, the, the important part is like, is the protest worth supporting in the first place? And I, I think it is, just like I was in support of what was happening in Hong Kong. Uh, even though, yes, did are there are elements of dis, does the American government tend to get involved in everything? Yes, sure. Okay, no doubt. But like that doesn't take away from the initial grievances or what people are actually fighting for. Yeah. So uh, with that out of the way, I, I don't know how to transition to the next piece. <laughs> Just um, be better. Yeah. Be good people. I thought you were going to have something more substantive to say. Or was... <laughs> no, I'm waiting for the outro music so I can get into my nope. important gotta, article. Got to drag it out for... Oh boy, do I have an article for you. I'm ready. I've never uh, been more ready. I'm so ready. Today, I am suggesting that everybody read the Wikipedia page for rye bread. <laughs> it's tasty. I knew it was coming. It hurts my stomach, stomach a little bit. Um, it is more protein rich than wheat bread it stores for significantly longer in the order of months instead of days um remember at the beginning of the pandemic when everyone was just into making breads remember when that was a thing yeah yeah we should bring that back but with rye bread um <laughs> fun fact about rye um it's theorized that like the reason that it got domesticated was because it was a weed that would grow in wheat fields and um because if it didn't look enough like wheat it would get pulled out because it looked like a weed and looked like it shouldn't belong there uh it got artificially selected uh to start looking more like wheat <laughs> and that's, that's how rye got domesticated <laughs> that's actually kind of cool yeah that's really great right <laughs> nature's fun. um unfortunately it does have gluten um, which I was really sad to find out about. Um, Gotta get those GMO yeah. scientists, make a gluten-free rye. Let's go. Yes, exactly. It has a lot of vitamin Bs in it. <laughs> um, <laughs> don't, don't spoil it. Let them read the article. We got <laughs> True. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> You're right. Um, it's a great, it's a great piece. Um, though the Wikipedia, <laughs> Editors really nailed this one. 
Uh, and if you want more Rye facts, uh, please consider donating to us at patreon.com slash imperial news. If you want to stay informed about what we're doing, you can also find us on Twitter at imperial news with a Z. We have a Discord setup. We do Twitch streams. Uh, I have, I'm going to be streaming parts of the emergency act inquiry. So that's something that you want to listen to while listening to me, listen to it. (laughs) Join me on stream. Uh, and you can find videos on our YouTube channel. You can find all the links in the show notes of this episode. Lastly, you can email us any question at imperial.fake.news at gmail.com. Special thanks to my friend Mason Tickle for the transition beats. You can find his work at masontickle.com. Thank you for listening. And the University of Toronto, you canceled. Yeah. Albumbia, Albumbia, how lovely are your wheat fields.